Yeah. I always want an adult lounge. I hear the baby lounge and I picture these babies reclining and enjoying treats. I don't know what. Pray with me too briefly as I bring us in, in front of Jesus. So Jesus, thank you for our gathering here. Um, we believe you're present. Help us to hear you, perceive you, detect you, connect with you. And come away enlightened and enlivened. Amen. So my wife got a call the other day. One of my sons apparently just had some downtime, some free time. And he called her and they began a conversation. Which sounded like a delightful conversation. A conversation of meaning, talking about, as far as I could detect from a distance, what had gone on that day, what the current concerns were, went on for a while which made me feel just so really good. Except that my underwriting thought was, why didn't he call me? <laughs> right? He had free time, I'm here, I'm a parent too. <laughs> I heard their conversation. I heard the experience that my wife was having with my son. And it stirred in me, you know, in addition to, oh, isn't that lovely, the desire to be having it too. I wanted to be having the experience that she was having with him. And it'd be fine if this was just kind of a one-off, but it's pretty much a daily occurrence <laughs> that one of my kids in their downtime will call my wife, and they will have lovely and delightful conversations of meaning about what's going on that day, concerns, relational things, work, whatever it is. <laughs> so then my wife and I were driving, this was just yesterday I think, and I got a call from my son. <laughs> and he said, Dad, I'm just on my way home from work. And so we chatted and it was lovely and delightful. I had this occurrence with my son. But then of course afterwards my wife and I were looking at her phone for some reason and we realized, oh, he called her first and she just didn't answer. <laughs> you know? And so it's just real, right? That I see my wife having this experience with one of my kids and it stirs in me the desire, like forms it right then. I want that too. But here's the thing. Within myself, I love my relationships with my kids. They're really great. I love what we talk about. I love what we do together. I love how much we talk. <laughs> I'm an introvert. I now have five kids who are all partnered in some way or other and two grandkids. My wife is an extrovert. There is no way I could talk <laughs> and do conversations of meaning as much as she does. She loves it, it comes from within her, it flows naturally, it's great. There can only be one her. Right? What happens if I start to desire this just because I see it in her, I see this good experience that she's having, I want to have it. If I go down that road, it can bring all sorts of trouble. I can start to do things. I can start to relate to my kids and desire interaction with them, not because of real desire, but just because she's had it. And I want it too. It can start to produce a strained kind of, kind of competition between my wife and I. Right? I can't be her. 
There's only one her. If I try to be her, that produces trouble. And the truth is, I will become unhappy. Just because I'm going after this thing, I'm desiring something just because I see her having it. Not coming naturally from within myself. Now this, I think, uh, I'm not alone in. In, in seeing something that I want or coming to want something just because I see somebody else experiencing it. I think this is the primary thing that activates social media. I think when something goes viral, this is primarily what we're talking about. Somebody else is having an experience and I gotta have it. I think, too, that it's something that Jesus was deeply aware of in the human community, this form of social behavior. In fact, my sense from paying attention to what he says and does and the instructions that he gives to people about social relating, I think that for Jesus this was probably one of the chiefest sources of troublingness to him about how human beings relate to each other. That it wasn't just this kind of funny thing that occasionally makes you feel uncomfortable. That there is the propensity for real difficulty, real harm real chaos in the human community, and that there's almost nothing that he spent more time trying to extract us from, to free us from, to build a human community free from living out this way of wanting things, of grasping for things, of learning what to desire. So we're gonna look at this morning at a story where this is front and center. <laughs> we're going to go into a house party that Jesus attends. And what I want you to do, your primary task as you listen, is just to pay attention to your own inner discomfort. Right? It is a real clue to what's going on. Too often we suppress these things. There is almost no gathering that Jesus is a part of that does not produce discomfort. Okay? And we too often suppress that because we think God is supposed to make us feel good. Well, Jesus produces a lot of discomfort, and it's helpful to follow that as we go into these interactions. So this is the story. It comes from the account of the life of Jesus that's attributed to the author, Luke. And this is the beginning of chapter 14. It says, now, that, now it happened that as Jesus went into the house of one of the chiefs of the Pharisees, they were observing him carefully. So Jesus is the esteemed guest at a banquet. And we'll see through and through, this is a primarily male event, patriarchy running rampant. The host is called a chief of the Pharisees. So this would be a high-ranking religious official. Okay, today we might call him a bishop. In the denomination that we used to be a part of, we might call him a regional overseer. Someone who is committed to the rules of the institution and to maintaining those rules. And the people in the room, his esteemed guests, are observing Jesus carefully. Right? Jesus has gotten some renown. He's been impressive to the people. He's you know, becoming, uh, uh, there's a groundswell of support for him. But the religious institution isn't quite sure because he says and does things that are kind of threatening to them. So here's an event where they're going to be watching him carefully. So it says, and look, before Jesus was a certain man with dropsy. So dropsy is the term that they would have used for what we would call congestive heart failure. So here's a person whose heart is not pumping strongly enough, the primary manifestation of which is the accumulation of fluid, 
And in a day and age before treatment, this man would have been quite incapacitated by his congestive heart failure. So it says, and speaking out, Jesus addressed the lawyers and the religious officials saying, is it lawful on the Sabbath to heal or not? So this banquet turns out to occur on the Sabbath, the mandated day of rest, again, in this home where institutional rules are preeminent. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to heal or not? And they were silent. <laughs> this will be a thing that plays out in this dinner that Jesus does most of the talking and everybody else is kind of uncomfortably quiet. And laying hold of the man, Jesus healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, who is there among you whose son or ox, I just find that an interesting grouping, right? <laughs> who among you whose son or ox will fall into a pit and he will not immediately pull it up again on the Sabbath day, right? So the question is, if something of value to you falls into a pit like your child, will you rescue it or not? Because it's the Sabbath. And he will not immediately pull it up again on a Sabbath day. And again, and against this, they were powerless to return an answer. Okay, so a lot of quietness in the room. And again, if you imagine yourself as an attender, like sitting off on the sides, I'd be feeling pretty uncomfortable by now. Right, there's tension in the room. There's only one person talking. That person is being scrutinized. But Jesus is only happy to fill in the vacuum of quietness with some additional observations <laughs> that are kind of the focus of us for this morning. And taking note of how they were choosing the chief places at the table, Jesus addressed a parable, so a made-up story, to those who had been invited, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to wedding festivities, do not recline at the best place at the table in case someone more honored than you has been invited by him. And the one who invited both you and him will come and say to you, give place to this one. And you then will proceed to take the last place. Rather, when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, that one will say to you, friend, go up to a higher place. And then there will be glory for you before everyone reclining at table with you. For everyone exalting themselves will be humbled, and the one humbling themselves will be exalted. So I have a struggle when I encounter the words of Jesus in the text. I do a thing to them because of the words of Jesus, particularly if they're in quotation marks. Right? If it's a quote from Jesus, what I do is I extract it from its setting, and I attribute certain values to it, certain characteristics. Right? These are words from God. And so I assume, or I impute to them, truthfulness, straightforwardness. It's a clear communication from God. There's nothing fuzzy or strange. There's nothing of subterfuge to it. I impute to it kindness. It's well-intentioned and nice. I impute to it typically, too, something of eternity. This is a word, after all, from God to humankind that's going to be stable, truthful, kind, loving for all people forever. It's like a Christmas present, right? I extract it from the wrapping, the packaging, the context. I tear that off and throw it away as quickly as possible and then get to the words. The problem is, if I do that, it ties me up in knots. 
right? Because what comes to be the case in this instance is that it appears Jesus is really, really, really worried about how we choose where we sit at social events. Like that comes to be a pretty deep concern of Jesus, how I make these choices. And if he's trying to undo some behavior, some repetitive behavior or approach, he just has flipped it on its head, right? Instead of choosing the best seat now, the rule will be to choose the worst seat, and we'll all compete for that. And the other thing, too, is that nobody actually does this. Like, nobody. So if this is an instruction from Jesus about how we're to choose our places at social gatherings, it hasn't gone very well, right? Because When you go and I go to a social event, there are all sorts of factors that determine where we sit, how we choose our seats. Maybe this is one of them, I don't know. But the thing is, in the context, Jesus has identified a specific behavior, a specific social behavior that's disturbing to him, that's bothering him. And so what he is trying to do is name that, illuminate that from within the system that has produced it in a way that's provocative, in a way that I think causes confusion, causes upset, causes distress, so that the people listening will uh, pause, will stop, will wrestle a bit, right? So, So to be specific, what Jesus sees going on in the room is that the primary currency, the primary thing of desire is this, is glory for you before everyone reclining at table. Right? What everybody in the room wants is affirmation from the person in power, but it's only of value if everybody else sees it. <clears throat> so if I see you being treated well by the host, that's the currency, that's what I want. I want to be treated well by the host and have everybody else see it. And so what Jesus sees is the people in the room sort of taking preemptive action. I am going to get the best seat. I am going to grasp it. A primary sign of this kind of affirmation is being seated closest to the person in power. And so I'm going to go for that. I'm going to try to get it. (laughs) But what happens is the instant I see you not just attaining it, but even trying to attain it, I think, hey, what are you doing? I want that too. Right? I want that seat. I want that reward. I want that glory. And I want everybody else to see it. And the flip side, right, is that if it goes in the reverse direction, if I grasp too high and then am publicly moved down, I experience shame and humiliation. So what Jesus sees is this kind of um, awareness of something to desire. Some people would call it mediated desire. I see you going for something and I want it and I engage in behaviors to get it. Jesus sees this going on in the room amongst the guests and it's troubling to him and he tries to reveal it to them, right? (laughs) But before they can kind of wrestle through and feel the puzzlement and what's going on, I don't quite understand what the trouble is, Jesus is often running to the next source of trouble. He says, and to the one who had invited him, so the host, Jesus said, when you prepare a luncheon or dinner, do not, and how, Jesus is going to tick through a list of people that this fictional person might invite. But they're all people actually in the room, right? 
So Jesus is just naming what's actually going on in the room. So he says, when you prepare a luncheon or dinner, do not call your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and it becomes a recompense for you. Rather, when you prepare a celebration, invite the destitute, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you shall be blissful, for they have nothing to repay you with for it will be repaid you in the resurrection of the just. So here again, if I extract these words in quotation marks, what I am hearing from God through Jesus is a deep concern about how to, instruct, how to construct a guest list at a party. Who to invite, who not to invite, right? And there's a little bit of a possibility of a whiff. Well, maybe God is concerned, and he's just communicating through this event, about bringing in those who are normally excluded, bringing in the marginalized, bringing in the destitute, those with physical limitations that would normally keep them out, right? But I don't think that's what's going on here. And Jesus makes that explicit in his comments. What Jesus is instead saying to the master is, I have just talked to your guests about their behavior, but let's not fool anybody. You are a participant in this system, right? And who you invite and how you behave towards your guests. When you move somebody up to a higher seat of honor, let's be clear, you're not doing that out of the kindness of your heart. You have a hope that they will pay you back in kind. It's a system of responsiveness, of reciprocity, of recompense, right? And so Jesus' instruction to him about who to invite, I don't think is meant to be an instruction for all humans for all time. I mean, Jesus attended plenty of events, dinners, banquets, where he was just there with his friends, where people he loved invited him and they invited his friends and they had a good time having dinner together. The specific outcome that Jesus is looking for from this instruction is to extract the host from this whole system of reciprocity in social behavior. So if you're still kind of puzzled and confused, like, What's the big deal? I don't understand what's going on. They're just trying to be nice to each other. Who is it harming? All these kind of questions, you're not alone. <laughs> because remember, at this dinner party, Jesus is the only one who has spoken until now. It says, and hearing this, one of those reclining at table with him said to him, blissful is anyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. <laughs> Now, if I were in the room, my interpretation of this person would be they're just sort of saying, oh, can we just eat dinner? <laughs> right? right? They're feeling the intensity of Jesus, and they're sort of going, yeah, Jesus, whatever, I hear you're kind of worked up about this, but let's all just calm down, let's have a good time, let's go on with the meal. What's the big deal anyways? And if I was there, I'd probably be agreeing with this person. I'd probably have a similar sentiment. What's the problem, Jesus, if there's sort of this little inside group who are behaving in this way? What's the real trouble? So, it says, And Jesus said to him, A certain man prepared a great banquet and invited many. So, Jesus is going to tell his story now. Far from hearing... This person saying, calm down, Jesus, and Jesus saying, oh yeah, sorry, I got a little worked up, didn't I? Let's eat. <laughs> Jesus says, oh my goodness, you have not heard a word I said. 
It has not gotten through to you. You are not perceiving. I think to Jesus, far from him being a little bit peeved or upset or whatever, he is perceiving again a deep source of distress to him in human social behavior. And so far from being deterred, he's going to go all in. He's going to tell a fictional story. He's going to tell a fictional story. He's at a, at a home as the honored guest at a banquet, so he's going to tell a fictional story about a host and a banquet and what goes on, right? A certain man prepared a great banquet and invited many and sent out his slave at the hour of the banquet to say to those who had been invited, come because it is ready now. And as one, they all began to decline. So this story is going in a different direction. Right? We'll have to figure out what that means. But in this setting, with this banquet, the people who are invited say, no, nah, I'm not going to come. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I'm forced to go out and see it. I ask you, have me excused. And another said, I bought a yoke of five oxen, and I'm going to make a test of them. I ask you, have me excused. And another said, oh my gosh. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore cannot come. So... Just as a side note, again, we're in the midst of patriarchy. And I think a part of what Jesus is poking at, in addition to the bigger topic, is this concept of men possessing things. Right? I bought a field. I bought some oxen. I married a wife. That's an interesting grouping. And approaching, the slave reported these things to his lord. Then, enraged, the master of the house told his slave, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the destitute and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Lord, what you commanded has been done and there is still room. And the Lord said to the slave, go out to the roads and palings. It's just like going out to every kind of street imaginable, whatever a paling is. And force them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those men who have been invited shall taste of my banquet. <laughs> so I'm just uncomfortable all over the place. I'm uncomfortable if I'm actually in that banquet, the real one, with the people there to whom Jesus is talking. I'm uncomfortable if I'm in the fictional banquet that Jesus has just described. And this is a part of my journey with the text and kind of what you get for being a part of our whole journey. In my upbringing, in my Christian training, filled with patriarchy, if in the story, a story that's told in the text, there is a man of power, so all the stories, the people in the stories represent somebody, an individual or a group of people, so in these fictional stories, if there is a man of power, particularly a man with title, but any man of power, it's really, really, really likely that that person represents God, right? And so in this story, there's a banquet. It's a story of a banquet, which is a common metaphor for how we conceive of the human community that God is constructing through Jesus. So I, since forever, have just grouped this story as one of those. It's a story of God and how God constructs a banquet and who God keeps out and who God includes and isn't God wonderful? And so because I start with that presumption, the man of power is God, I force the story to conform to that. I force the actions of the man to be godly. 
<laughs> but then I look at this story and I think, oh my goodness, what have I done? Right? If I'm inhabiting the fictional story just as an attender there, the first thing I'm aware of is that a slave came along and said, you have to come to a banquet. And I thought, what are you talking about? Maybe I did it because even the slave of this powerful person is more powerful than me. But once, they, once I arrive there, it's just a place of chaos. Everybody else has been forced to attend. None of us know why we're there. And the only emotion that comes from the master is anger. The master is just angry. Angry, angry, angry through and through. And there are a bunch of powerless people who are filling up the home of this person. And what I come to realize if I hear the whisperings, what's going on, is that I'm only here not because I was in the mind of the master, but because of the ones who were invited didn't come. And so then I start to try to make sense of that. And if I channeled the previous stories of Jesus, this whole concept of what the currency is, glory in front of others, there's some truth to the fact that in this setting, once you get the invitation, you've won. You've got it, right? I mean, we all kind of know this phenomenon. You get an invitation to a big party, and once you make the fact that you've been invited public, once you let others know, you kind of got what you needed. Like, actually going isn't that big a deal if others know you've been invited. And so that's what's happening here. Those who've been invited say, no, 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 I'm not going to come. I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this. I've come into a new possession, right? A field, some oxen, a wife. And so I'm not going to come to the party. The response of the master to this is to be enraged. The master is enraged and so enacts vengeance. The master objectifies other human beings, rousts them into his house, is completely unhappy, and the only reason the master is doing it is so that if one of those who was invited, who said no, decides otherwise and says, actually, I want to come, the master can say, nope, there won't be room for you. So the fruit of the kind of behavior that these people are engaging in is it causes them to participate in a system of vengeance, of retribution, of objectifying others, using power over them, and ultimately being alone, right? And I think right below the surface too, the next step is out and out violence, harm, right? So Jesus is identifying something that's deeply disturbing to him about human social behavior that he's trying to call out and identify and help his, the people in the room to see. So <laughs> Jesus heads off. He doesn't give a lot of help about what to do otherwise, you know, how to extract yourself from this. But I see myself participating in it all over the place, just all sorts of things. I gave the kind of lighthearted example of kids calling my wife. I remember, too, in my um, life in science, you know, I particip I've participated in scientific research. And for those of us engaged in any form of research, we would all have an annual meeting where we would present what we had found out over the previous year. The goal of which <clears throat> was presumptively to present true information, true data, true findings that would carry us forward. 
But, but the real currency in the room was to be impressive to those in power in front of everybody else, right? And those two enterprises, what was true and what was impressive and recognized did not perfectly overlap. And it became very clear very quickly what to do, how to get one as opposed to the other. And so the whole enterprise would often just feel ooh, uncomfortable inside. The sense of competition, of reciprocity. If you advance me, I'll advance you. Just all sorts of difficulties, right? And again, I think this is a part of, so advertising, just through and through, is not about the quality of the product, but about the experience of the person enjoying the product. That you too, all of a sudden, need to have that experience. Truthfully, what the advertisers are trying to do is make you want to be that person. So for us this morning, I think there's an invitation from Jesus just to perceive this, to perceive how deeply embedded in us this way of wanting things, of coming to want things is. And I'll say too, that for me at least, one of the things that's most helpful to me in perceiving this in myself and contending with it is just the experience of actually connecting with God. When I have an experience of perceiving God and of knowing that God is perceiving me, and I have the deep sense of God loving me, God caring for me, God accepting me fully just as I am right now, it so diminishes the power of this kind of striving, this kind of grasping, this kind of being activated by the good experiences of others. I'm so much more able to stay within myself and be true to who I am and who God has made me to be. So as we prepare to shift towards communion and worship, I am just going to invite us into a moment of reflection. Primarily, is this something, how do you see this alive in your own, participating in relationship with others? Where do you see this way of getting activated by the desires of others activating you? And do you perceive it as causing you, when I see myself, it, it causes so much freneticness, chaos, distress. And so I think Jesus would invite us into just perceiving how it is a part of the fabric of our lives so that we can take advantage of all the ways that he offers to undo this, to be free from it. Okay? So let me pray. <clears throat> I'll give us a moment, and then I'll lead us into communion. So Jesus... Would you inhabit this space? Help us to see how we engage in this way of relating to each other, wanting something just because somebody else wants it or just because somebody else has it. All the ways that it causes freneticness, chaos, distress, and harm. Bring your illumination, Jesus. We give you this moment. Amen. So we'll shift now to communion and then to worship. For communion, uh, any of you who 
uh, would like to experience this way of encountering Jesus are welcome to join with us this morning. We have stations at the front of pre-packaged um, communion wafers and juice. There's a gluten-free station here. And then in the back of the room, we have two stations where you can break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice as a form of taking communion with us. Um, so the band can come forward. Um, but so join us in communion as we're ready, and then we'll continue forward into musical worship together.